Our real objection to the doctrine of God's choosing is our own prideful heart. The third one that we'll talk about is one that is quite often talked about, and that is the view that God does choose individual people, and God does choose prior to the creation of the world, but God's choosing is based on foreseeing or foreknowledge or knowing, looking down through the ages and seeing who would believe, and when God sees Prior to creation, who's going to believe, then he chooses them. That's the view that I think is a very dominant view, was this idea of what that means is, you know, we're not denying the doctrine of election, but we're saying that what that means is God foreknew, God saw who would believe, and then God chose them. What that does is that preserves the chooser, the person who chooses, as the one who makes the decisive decision. God's choice occurs prior to creation, but God exists outside of time, right? So he looks over all time, and only those who will make the choice of believing in Jesus does he then choose. So the person's choice is the dominant choice. It's the decisive choice. It's the the difference-making choice, right? So in a sense, that does for us the same thing that the first view does, which is just outright denial. That puts us in a place of hearing what our hearts most want to hear. That is, that that we had the spiritual wherewithal to choose Christ. So let's take a look at this, at this idea that God's choice of individuals is based on foreknowledge. So once again, let's start from the very passage that we're in. And let's see how the passage itself will not allow this idea that God's choosing is just him seeing who's going to choose him. The passage doesn't allow that because that would be absolutely changing the definition of the word that Paul used. It would absolutely be emptying the word chose of all its meaning and importing into that word a meaning that's foreign to it. Because what that does is that takes the concept of choosing and replaces it with the concept of ratifying. Because in other words, God didn't choose anything. God ratified your choice. You know what it means to ratify, right? Remember back from high school civics class, you know, the constitutional amendment uh, passes Congress and then it has to be ratified by two thirds of the states. Remember? And what that ratified means is not that the states made the choice. The states looked at what Congress did and say, yes, we agree with what you did. We agree with that. We will ratify your choice. That is taking the understanding, the meaning of the word choose, stripping it out and giving it a totally different meaning, which is ratify. Forcing scripture to say what it doesn't say. Now, if we're going to do that, we can say we can make scripture say whatever we want it to say. But that's not what Paul says. That's not the word he uses. He uses the word chose. So the text itself won't let us do that. But then furthermore, let's take a look at another passage of scripture. And I want to take a look at Romans chapter eight, verse 28, 29 and 30. 
Every time I've ever had someone explain to me the doctrine of God's choosing in this way, it's been this scripture that everybody wants to go to first. This is sort of the primary, premier, foundational scripture to teach the view that God's electing choice is basically him looking throughout history and seeing who's going to choose him. It's always Romans 8.29 that, that they want to go to. So Romans 8.28, you know how that goes, that we know that all good things, all things work out for the good of those who love God and called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. And there it is, right there. Boom. Those he foreknew. What does foreknew mean? It means to know before. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there you go, right there. First, there was a foreknowing. And out of the foreknowing came these other four steps, the steps of predestination, calling, justifying, and glorifying. And so there's like this progression And the progression starts with God foreknowing or God foreseeing. And from that it goes, he then predestines those who are going to believe. He then calls those who are going to believe. He then justifies those who are going to believe and eventually glorifies those. That's how it's always been explained to me. The main thing that we need to see in this is we need to see a biblical understanding of the idea of knowing. In the Bible, the idea of knowing is much more than cognitive knowledge. It involves the, the idea of choice. And this is, this is not really uh, debatable. This is very well established that the, the word that often is translated know in both Old Testament and New, what's translated as know often, in fact, almost always carries with it the idea that goes beyond just cognitive knowledge and into the idea of choosing. Genesis chapter 18, verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? For I have chosen him. Now that word there is the exact same word that is often translated no. There's only one. And it covers both concepts. I have chosen him. So clearly here, God is not saying I've known him in the sense of just cognitive knowledge. I I looked and I saw Abraham. But instead, I have made a choice. I've made a selection. And in uh, next uh, Amos chapter three and verse two, here's pretty clear. Only you have I known of all the families of the earth. That's the same exact word, precisely the same word. Here is translated known. Now, Clearly, God here is not saying that his people are the only people that he knows about. Clearly, he's not saying that the only knowledge he has are of his people and that the people that aren't God's people, he has no idea what they're doing. He has no idea where they're from, what they look like, what's going on. He has no knowledge of them because only my people have I known. Clearly, that doesn't make sense. But only you. Have I known? Have I, let me use the word acknowledge, recognize. Only you have I chosen or acknowledged. And the last one, Psalm 1, verse 5 and 6. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Now, is that implying that God only has understanding of the righteous ways, that he has no clue what unrighteous people are doing? No. Clearly, this also implies more than just cognitive knowledge. It is speaking of an acknowledgement or a, a choosing that it involves cognitive knowledge, but is far more than that. So with this idea from Romans, again, from Romans chapter eight, he says those whom he foreknew. It's not just that he looked and saw. There was also a choosing involved there. There was also a selection involved there. Take it up to the next screen there. God cannot see what's not there. So if God were to look out into eternity, if God were to, before creation, were to look out among those whom he created, looking for those who would have the righteousness within him to choose him, he would find nothing. He would find none. He could look for a hundred thousand years because God cannot see what's not there. Now, here's what God can see. He can see what he's going to put in people's hearts, but he can't see what's not there. Lastly, Acts chapter 13, verse 48. This is a passage that clearly shows us that faith follows a choice. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life did what? As many as were appointed that's a, that's a phrase that is synonymous with chosen. As many as were chosen or appointed to eternal life, believe. Th- those are the common understandings of the doctrine of God's choosing that are contradictory to how Paul presents it here. And Paul presents it in the letter to the Romans, how Peter presents it how the other New Testament writers are going to present it. Those ideas, namely, again, the idea that God's choosing is based on his seeing ahead of time who's going to choose him. So I just want to say a few things in summary, because we really are just beginning with this doctrine of God's choosing. Paul is going to take all the way to verse 14. And he's not even explaining it. He's just worshiping from it. So if Paul is going to take 10 verses just to worship from it, it's going to take us a little while to work through all the implications of what he's saying. Now, are there objections? Absolutely. There are intellectual difficulties with this. Namely, well, does this mean that we're just robots? Does this mean that if God chose us, that we're just sort of like wind-up dolls, we have no selection in this? No. The Scriptures never, never imply that our choice to hear the Gospel and believe it is anything less than a real, genuine, necessary choice. So how do we reconcile the two of those things? Well, that's something to work through. Now, why does God choose some and not others? The text is going to answer that, but we can't get there today. So what is Paul's view of God's choice, of the doctrine of God's choosing? That's what he's going to unfold and unpack over the next few verses. And so clearly we don't have time to get to all that today. That's that's what we're going to work through.
but to say at least this much today. The doctrine of God's choosing has never once barred the gates of heaven for anyone. There has never been a person who said in their heart, if God would have chosen me, I would have believed. There's never been a person who said in their heart, God, would you just choose me? Why would you not choose me? The doctrine of God's choosing has never closed the gates of heaven to anyone. In fact, the the way that the doctrine of God's choosing always presented in the scriptures, it's always presented to those who believe. And the reason it's presented is to say, here is why we should worship. Here is why we should glorify the Lord. It's never presented to people as though, you know, you better hope you're chosen so that you can believe. What do the scriptures say to people who who don't believe? You must believe and repent. That's it. You must believe and repent. Everyone who repents and believes will be grafted into Israel. But then scripture says to those who do believe, behold, the wonderful, magnificent thing that God has done. This is how he enabled you to believe. It's often been described as an archway. Imagine this archway with a a doorway in it. And then one side faces those. And on the side facing those who are in this life, uh, inscribed on this archway is repent and believe. All who would come to me may enter. The other side, as you pass through into the gates of heaven, and you turn back and you look to the other side, says, chosen from the foundation of the world. That is a helpful thing to get your mind around. That To those on this side of eternity, here's what the scriptures say. Repent and believe. But by way of worship, the scriptures say to those, if you have repented and believed, here is how God made you be able to do it. Here is how God enabled what Paul's going to say, dead sinners to believe. Here is how God raised spiritually dead people to life, chosen from the foundation of the world. Objection to the doctrine of God's choosing, if you really get down to it, is not intellectual. Now, I'm not making light of the difficulties that we'll have to work through in the coming weeks, but that's not our main objection. Neither is our main objection scriptural. The text is going to answer those questions for us and it's going to give us substantial, substantive answers for those questions. But those aren't our real objections to the doctrine of God's choosing. Our real objection to the doctrine of God's choosing is our own prideful heart. The heart that wants to cling to goodness within itself And while admitting the need for a Savior and the need for forgiveness, desperately crave to see something within me that made God choose me. Why did God choose me and not others? Paul's going to give us an answer. But that's not our objection. Our objection 
What we find so objectionable about this doctrine is this makes nothing within the basis of what, why God chose them. This means there's nothing that was commendable to God to me, that his choosing of me was based entirely on his prerogative. 